Toronto is about to undergo the most important high-stakes political event of the year. But we just had an election, you might groan. Don't worry, it's not another one of those. Hopefully not for a few years at least. No, I mean the annual budget. Wait, don't turn the podcast off. I'm serious. It may not sound thrilling, but the budget is when the real decisions get made. It's when City Council stops making promises and has to put a dollar figure next to their stated priorities. It's a lengthy process involving lots of community consultation, followed by a lot of debate in council. Mayor Olivia Chow has even introduced telephone town halls to hear people out. It's how things get done, or not, in the city. If elections are about ideas, the budget is how these ideas actually become realized and it's being voted on next month. What should our priorities be in 2024? Do we build more bike lanes? Do we increase the police service's $1.17 billion budget? Do we actually commit to sheltering people on the street instead of calling the cops on them? I have my opinions. I bet you do too. So bring on the budget. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the cusp of a potential turning point in local priorities, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, as part of our 20th anniversary celebrations, I talked to historian Adam Bunch, who wrote our most read blog post of all time. But first, Diana Chan McNally is a crisis worker and homelessness advocate. She has very specific ideas about where our local tax money should go and where to get it from especially when it comes to housing refugees and unhoused people across the city. Stand by. So, Diana, it seems like you do a lot of different things. You know, you've been on the show before. I wanted to ask you what your current, call them projects or, you know, ask you about the daily grind, especially now that we're in the kind of brutal winter months. The daily grind. So yeah, I think in my work, you know, I am still working frontline and that's kind of the the meat, I suppose, of what I do. It's been it's been rough. This has been not the coldest winter by any stretch of the imagination, but for a lot of the people that I'm now working with, it's their first winter. So it's a really high learning curve for a lot of the folks that I'm now seeing who are completely new to the drop-in, let alone to Toronto and to the winter weather. So I find that what I'm doing is just trying to get as much as I can in terms of just very basic winter supplies to ensure that people have, you know, socks at all, Mm -hmm. um, let alone decent winter socks. Um, so that we don't see cold-related injuries as as much as we normally do, um, especially for folks who have never heard before that you really have to keep your fingers and toes warm in the winter. So um, that's kind of what I'm up to these days. Pretty pretty basic. Yeah, I think you're referring especially to uh, a lot of African refugees who we, we saw an influx kind of in uh, this past summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like you said, a lot of them haven't really experienced a winter or Canadian winter, certainly. In fact, you helped raise an amount of money for for these people uh, who kind of 
came, I, I don't know, I think they expected some kind of resources and, and found mm-hmm. kind of nothing. That's exactly it. Um, you know, I think what we saw during the summer was unlike anything I had ever seen before. And I've been doing this work now for about eight, nine years at this point. I'd never seen people just abandoned to the sidewalk with absolutely nothing at all, not even water in some cases. So, you know, we mobilized myself, Lorraine Lamb, and a few volunteers to fundraise, which initially we had planned on fundraising about $3,000. But because of the the severity of the situation, we ended up getting almost $80,000, actually just slightly over $80,000 to purchase supplies and distribute them ourselves. A lot of that funding was eventually donated to Black-led organizations also engaged in uh, refugee support. But, you know, as I said, it's still very much like any, unlike anything I've ever seen before in terms of homelessness. There seems to be no plan, and even after months and now into the winter months, there seems to be no plan at all, especially from the federal government, about what's going to be done about this. And are we actually going to recognize that these are human beings with rights? So, you know, I've been involved also at the political level, not just on the ground distributing supplies, but also just advocating that this is a federal responsibility and they absolutely need to step up. And the fact that we're abandoning people with nothing, who are very much at risk of injury, of death, and we've seen somebody actually die and there's still no mobilization, it's completely egregious and and just unprecedented, in my opinion. Yeah, you wrote about exactly that uh, this month in the Toronto Star. I was hoping you could kind of unpack what the issue is. Uh, Basically, you are criticizing liberal MPs, like government MPs Mm -hmm. in Toronto, who are kind of pushing back against what they feel is unfair characterization by Mayor Olivia Chow, who's saying we need a certain amount of federal funding uh, for to address homelessness issues, or we'll be forced to uh, introduce a, a levy. And uh, I, I think the levy would be called something like the federal contingency, kind of letting voters know what gap this is filling and, and who, who didn't come to the table with their wallets open. Yeah, you know, and, and I've been very critical of uh, government funding throughout the duration of this crisis. And we initially had a commitment from the federal government of $97 million. And, you know, we were, we were very pleased with this. But at the same time, they didn't pay that $97 million. And in fact, to date, they've only paid $35 million. And they only did that in December. And they announced this funding in July. So I think, you know, the mayor and city council have been talking about in the federal budget, or sorry, uh, the municipal budget, this federal impacts levy that you mentioned, which is a 6% uh, property tax increase on top of the staff proposed 10.5%, really, again, to cover the cost of refugees who are currently in our shelter system. And right now, the city is estimating that about 40% of people in the shelter system are refugees. They are a federal responsibility. The feds should actually pay for this. It's what is logical. So I know the argument as of late has really become just this kind of political argument of the mayor versus our federal Toronto area liberal MPs. They're all liberals. And I really want to bring the conversation back from a kind of political spat to what it would actually mean for this funding if it were to actually materialize. Um, and I think, you know, in, in the lives of not just refugees, but unhoused Torontonians, it would have a major impact. Right now, we are facing profound shelter cuts if we don't get this money or if that federal impacts levy doesn't get passed. And I think it would be so wildly unpopular at council and with councillors that I don't think it would get passed. So really, what we have to do is, again, lobby the federal government for this money because it means that we could actually build new shelters, more shelters, better, safer decent shelters 
and transition out of these shelter hotel contracts that John Tory helped to tender and that are really kind of predatory. Uh, if you look at sort of the, the meat and bones of what these contracts are about and what they fund, the city is on a hook for a lot of different things that really reasonably it should not be. And we're paying through the nose to these hotels for what is absolutely just kind of subpar space. But if we had this federal money, we wouldn't have to rely on them. Again, we could have more shelter for refugees, for everyone. And we would be able to bring in hundreds of people, if not thousands, off of the streets. So the fact that they're they're kind of just boiling it down to the spat with the mayor, calling her a liar when actually the math is fully correct. $250 million is what we need for at least this year. It just seems really ludicrous to me that they're framing it like it's this mayor who's trying to just shake them down for money when it's really about basic resources, basic shelter for hundreds, if not thousands of Torontonians. So as you say, the city is asking for $250 million. I, I believe that would uh, include the $97 million that's already been committed to by the federal government, although you say that hasn't arrived. Is, is that the case? Yeah, yeah. As I said, there only $35 million has actually arrived, and it took six months for that to actually happen. The other piece of this is that this federal commitment isn't just about that $250 million in itself. When Olivia Chow brokered the new deal with Premier Ford, the province actually is willing to commit $200 million a year for three years to Toronto's shelter and homelessness services, but only if the federal governments actually match their contributions. So it's logical, again, this $250 million is being asked for because that's the cost of refugees, but also it would unlock these provincial funds, which if you actually look at the 2024 budget, the city is actually banking on this provincial money actually arriving. So they've included it in their budgeting, which if we don't get this federal money, that $200 million that we've already accounted for, we'll lose that too. So this is why I'm talking about shelter cuts. If we don't get this money, it means that that $200 million gets taken out of the budget and something gets cut. Now, talking about the proposed uh, 2024 Toronto Municipal Budget, I, I know you've deputed to talk about uh, one of your priorities, and we can get to that. But, you know, that's going to be voted on in a month, well, less than a month now. What are your initial reactions to the proposed budget? For listeners, keep in mind that this could change, it could be adjusted by a council, uh, and it all has to be voted on and approved. Yeah, and I also this has really been bothering me. I also want to put out there that this is a staff drafted budget. Everyone keeps calling it the mayor's budget, but the mayor hasn't yet presented her budget. So I know this is just niggling of me, but it is absolutely bothering me. And as you say, it's not something that is set in stone. So we could see significant changes uh, when the mayor does finally present her budget. And again, when we it goes to vote at council. My initial take was like, this is pretty good. In the past, uh, we've seen overall that social services, shelters, the Toronto Community Crisis Service, even though it was piloted during John Tory's tenure, we've seen that there's been this, this real austerity that's kind of underpinned funding for most of these kinds of services. And moreover, when John Tory was our mayor, there was this narrative of it's either housing or it's shelter. And if you do fund housing, then we can't fund shelter at the same time. It was this either or argument, which is ridiculous. Like ideologically, yes, we should have housing for everybody. But since we're in this emergency now, of course, we need shelter too. So we often saw that things like homelessness services would get starved because a lot more emphasis was being put on housing. Now, whether or not it was enough emphasis or any housing was built is another matter. But that's the narrative that I think was really um, underpinning budgets under John Tory's tenure. Whereas now we're seeing that, hey, 
Maybe we should be addressing all of these things collectively. Now, that said, something that happened during Rob Ford's tenure, during John Tory's tenure, is that we saw with community-based supports, things like daytime drop-ins, which is my sector, things like housing help in the community, these were being defunded uh, to the point where some programs have been fully defunded. So we no longer have any community-based housing help workers which is wild because we're in a housing crisis. You would think you would want to invest more in that kind of help because it's not just about securing housing. It's also about preventing eviction. Right. But we actually have a budget line of zero dollars for this in the 2024 budget. So, you know, I deputed at City Hall about one of these community-based supports, daytime drop-ins, which have had flatline funding for a decade. Since 2013, we haven't really seen any increases at all. And I think that's because it's been buried in the budget that you actually can't see the budget line for it. So some of these cuts, I think, are un unintentional or flatlining rather. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, in my deputation and kind of engaging with the mayor's office, engaging with city staff, that maybe we can change that because these community-based supports are actually the most accessed, in many ways the most helpful, but also the most underappreciated. So hopefully we can change, but overall, I'd say it's pretty good. I don't think the police should be receiving any increases at all. Um, I will die on that hill. I do believe that we can reallocate significantly from them, but we are where we are and limiting their increases is already proving to be extremely difficult and they're mobilizing all their resources to get the full funding as they want versus slightly less than they want. Right. And in comparison, in your deputation, you asked for $1 million for daytime drop-ins. I think you said yeah. there are 22 of them across the city. Mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of listeners will will know, but you know, in context, $1 million in, in the context of a, the total Toronto city budget is kind of a drop in the bucket. But you, you said in your deputation that, that that $1 million could go a very long way. That spends big in the context of daytime drop-ins. Absolutely. It's, I don't think people understand sometimes the real funding disparity between homelessness services and community supports versus the police. So, you know, we know that the police budget is well over a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. For my entire sector of daytime drop-ins, our actual core funding is 3.9 million, really. So that's less than 1% of the police budget. And what we do is really about prevention, about addressing the roots of crime and poverty, about ensuring that people have supports, are able to socialize, can actually eat, especially people who can't access a food bank because they don't have access to a kitchen. We're feeding a lot of people um, who are living in extreme poverty in the city, and yet we have almost no resources to do this. So $1 million would mean increasing our budget by slightly more than 25%, which is really sad when you think about it, but it would be a huge difference in what we're actually able to do. You know, it's really funny because we're always told in the community sector that we we should just be more resilient. We should be able to get by with such few resources. And now we see the Toronto police, and I can't just help but think that they're being like obstinate children because they can't even accept slightly less than what they want versus those of us doing community work who are used to getting nothing mm -hmm. um, and just cuts or flatlining for years and years and years. You mentioned something, and I wanted to ask kind of big picture, but you spoke about how in the past, you know, housing has been pitted against homelessness. Uh, and I actually wanted to ask you, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm wondering, you used the term in your latest Star article, homelessness crisis. 
And、mm-hmm. we talk a lot about the housing crisis. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, does the homelessness crisis kind of get absorbed and/or overshadowed by the broader housing crisis conversation, which can mean a lot of things, but doesn't necessarily speak to the homelessness crisis? Yeah, I think you're right. When we're talking about the housing crisis, I think you know, in general, and it's not universally true. There's more of a middle class lens being applied here, where we're talking about, and I don't mean advocates, and that includes UMB advocates. I actually mean just like from a government policy perspective, we're often talking about first time home buyers、mm-hmm. <laughs> in the context of the housing crisis. And the reality of my work is that we're talking about people who have. In some cases, like pennies in their pocket,、um, and don't have access to income at all. Sometimes, or just social assistance, not being able to afford even the most basic shelter, even a disgusting, like cockroach-filled rooming house room, which you and I, most people, wouldn't even want to live there. But they can't even afford that. So, I do think it does get absorbed, especially at the policy level. And I think we do need to start separating it out a little bit and really start to address, you know, housing more from an equity lens. Of here are now thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people across Canada who are not able to access housing at all. How are we meeting their needs and ensuring that when we are looking at our housing policy, that we are addressing、um, the most vulnerable populations first and foremost? There doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite to do that, and we've kept the narrative again very kind of clean and very middle class about buying your first home. Which you know, I'm a millennial, and <laughs> I started, there's absolutely no way, no way that I'm going to be buying a home. That's just my、oh, reality, same, and that's same, <laughs> right? And I kind of accepted that, so this narrative doesn't even really resonate for me at all. And you have to kind of wonder who is this really for? Well, Diana, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for thanks for letting me blather on on your radio program again. <laughs> And if you'd like to learn more about Diana, she was just named one of the 20 people we love in the latest 20th anniversary issue of Spacing Magazine. So, go get a copy. Now, Adam Bunch is a historian of all things Toronto, a captivating storyteller, and the recent recipient of the 2023 Governor General's History Award for Popular Media. He tells us about the rush of receiving the award, the work that earned it, and treats us to one of the wildest stories in the history of Hogtown. Okay, well, Adam.、Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you as、uh, the 2023 Governor General's History Award for Popular Media. I guess also known as the Pierre Burton Award.、Uh, fans of Canadiana will will know the name Pierre Burton uh, as uh, maybe one of our most famous historians.、Uh, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's made for a couple of yes,、yeah, strange months and a wonderful trip to Ottawa to meet the other award winners. They give out. It's run by Canada's History Society. They give it a bunch of Governor General's History Awards every year. A lot of the winners are teachers, and getting to meet them, especially and hear about their work, which so often goes unrecognized. But all these people all over the country who are doing all these amazing things, all these creative projects to get kids to connect with the country's past, was yeah, a deeply inspiring experience, and it is. Yeah, a little humbling and terrifying to look at the list of past winners. 
Pierre Burden himself was the first one to get it. So it is all, yeah, a bit overwhelming, but also incredibly energizing and encouraging. And that past list of winners is a lot to live up to. So, uh, yeah, it gives me a big boost heading into 2024 uh, to know now that, yeah, I've got to try to live up <laughs> to having won this uh, and keep going. You mentioned it was kind of a months long process. How did you first come to know that you were nominated in the running? I got an honorable mention for an award in a different category years and years ago, right at the very beginning of my Toronto history work. But the very first Toronto history project I did, the Toronto Dreams Project, which was sort of a mixture of fiction and true fact about people from the city's past. Uh, and it was the organizers who got in touch then to ask me to apply. And the same thing happened this time. They got in touch and asked me to submit a package, which I had done the previous year, which is the year before me when Thomas King won, which makes a lot of sense and made me think I had no chance ever that people of that stature uh, were getting this award. Uh, but they asked me to resubmit the next year. And then, yeah, a few months later, I got a phone call letting me know that the impossible had happened and that uh, I then needed to keep it a secret for a couple of months because it's Rideau Hall needs to officially announce it, I believe. And yeah, then I was off to Ottawa for that whirlwind week. And so is this recognizing kind of your work in general, taking into account, as you said, the Toronto Dreams, uh, your your multiple books, your Canadiana video series, uh, uh, the recent festival that you put on, and uh, I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's for the breadth of work. So a lot of the awards, uh, like that old one for the Dreams Projects for community programming, which is one specific project, but the Popular Media Award uh, can be for specific projects. So like Canada, a people's history has been recipients of it. Uh, the old documentary series from the CBC from the early 2000s, the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, but also, yeah, people like Pierre Burden, Thomas King, Marie Sinclair for all of your work put together, uh, which I think, yeah, is maybe my cheat code for having been an unlikely recipient is just that I try to do so much and I'm so busy with so many different things and try to keep myself interested by staying fresh and coming up with new ideas that yeah, I've built a big pile of projects that I'm always working on. Uh, so I had volume, at least in my corner. You mentioned feeling kind of daunted by the the previous recipients of the, the caliber of their work. Uh, I could understand that's maybe humbling, but uh, what does this award mean to you personally? It's um, yeah, incredibly encouraging. And yeah, I think often when people get awards and say it's humbling, it sounds like they mean the opposite. In my case, I very much mean it that that I am. It's a little frightening to have gotten it and have to live up to those standards. So. It's encouraging and energizing in that way too, not just that people who know what they're talking about, I think recognize uh, that my work has some value and that what I'm doing is making some at least small contribution, but also, yeah, energizing, uh, meaning that yeah, it's getting attention, it's connecting with people, some people are enjoying it, uh, which yeah, helps keep it going because it is an absolute ton of work. It's taken over my entire life. I'm working all day, every day, mostly. Uh, so having that kind of feedback is, yeah, something that will, I think, help me keep going and help drive me to start some new projects in the new year and, uh, yeah, keep going. 
Well, recently, uh, we both celebrated uh, sort of uh, a, a historical landmark uh, for, for spacing itself. Uh, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the magazine we've, we've both been contributing to for years in different capacities. So I wanted to talk to you about, uh, I don't know if you know or not, but you have the distinction of having the most popular blog post of all time on, on spacing.ca, our, our website, and that is entitled... The Toronto Circus Riot of 1855, the day the clowns picked the wrong Toronto brothel. Did you know that was the most popular blog post on spacing? You'd heard it mentioned. I think uh, <laughs> Dylan Reed, or your editors, has uh, mentioned it from time to time. Matt might have too, but it's often on the most read, which I think, again, is yeah a bit of luck that happened to have stumbled across such a strange story. And then I think links to that spacing piece have been you know, cross-posted on a bunch of American websites and stuff so that there's uh, been a long trickle of traffic that helps drive it up the list. Uh, so it's a fun little point of pride to have. Well, uh, you know, if listeners want, and, and I encourage them to seek out the full story on, on the website, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, why why there was a circus riot in Toronto in 1855? Uh, who, who were the main combatants there? It's a story that's not just bizarre, but I think really illuminating too, which is part of what I love about it. I want to turn it into a whole book uh, someday because there's so much to it. It reveals so much about how Toronto worked, not just in the middle of the 1800s, but until sort of not that long ago. But all centers around uh, this traveling circus who had come to Toronto in, yeah, the summer of 1855, 1 July, when Toronto was still really a frontier town in a lot of ways. It had just been 70 years since it was founded on this Indigenous land, still a place of muddy streets and wooden sidewalks. The first railroads had only just opened. Uh, so still a time when Toronto was a pretty rough place and where there still wasn't a lot of entertainment. So the visiting circus was a massive deal. Uh, it was a particularly big, popular circus, too. This guy, S.B. Howes, who had worked with P.T. Barnum and had this big reputation, who came in with this traveling circus with acrobats and exotic animals and circus clowns as well. And clowns back in the middle of the 1800s were pretty rough people. In fact, all circus performers sort of had to be. There are stories of the fights that would break out at circuses after almost every performance, but there's these sort of traveling, almost liminal spaces at the edge of society, literally and figuratively pitching their tents and then moving on. So places that were deeply associated with drinking and gambling and sex work and violence. And so these clowns from the circus, after their first couple of shows, the first day they were in town, headed out on the town into Toronto to spend the night letting off some steam at one of Toronto's many brothels, uh, Mary Jo Armstrong's place, I believe, which was out by King and John. So somewhere right in the neighborhood, right around where the Tiff Lightbox is now, was this brothel where the clowns get in line, it sounds, uh, to get in and run into some local firefighters. And these are the days when firefighters were also pretty rough crews. The day before, there was a centralized public fire department. So you had some private fire brigades who 
would often end up fighting over fires. When an alarm was sounded, they'd rush there, try to be the first ones there so they'd get to put out the flames and get paid for it, but would often arrive at the same time as someone else. Riots would break out over which fire brigade got to put out the flames. Just a couple of weeks before this night at the brothel, this same fire brigade, the hook and ladder company, had gotten into what became known as the Fireman's Riot, where they had arrived and started looting the homes that were on fire instead of putting the fire out, just started stealing the stuff. And when the police arrived, started beating up the police officers who were trying to stop them. So <laughs> they're guys who have a big experience of violence as well. So maybe not surprising that a brawl breaks out between the clowns and the firefighters at this King Street brothel. And we don't know exactly how it started. Some say a clown knocked a hat off a firefighter's head, others that, uh, that they had cut in line. What we do know is that the clowns won that night. One of the firefighters was pretty injured. They had to retreat, and the clowns were able to enjoy the rest of their night at the brothel in peace. But as the title of the piece suggests, uh, they picked the wrong guys on the wrong night of the year as well. But the firefighters were members of the Orange Order. The Orange Order is this extremely Protestant, uh, very anti-Catholic fraternal organization founded in Northern Ireland. And in these days, Toronto's both incredibly Irish and incredibly Protestant. So the Orange Order becomes a big deal here, just like it still is in places like Belfast today. In fact, in Toronto, the Orange Order would basically run municipal politics for a century. It's not until the 1950s and Nathan Phillips that that stranglehold on power is finally broken. And that night at the brothel, it's in the early days of the Orange Order's beginning to get that stranglehold on power. And you pretty much needed to be a member of the Orange Order to get any big public-facing job. So nearly every mayor for a century, police officers, firefighters, and they tended to look out for their own. So when the firefighters had gotten into that brawl, or sorry, that riot with the police officers, the police officers then suspiciously, when it came time to press charges and have court cases, couldn't remember any of the firefighters who'd been beating them up because they too were members of the Orange Order. And it meant that those firefighters, having lost that fight to the clowns, had tons of allies in town. Not only that, the biggest day on the orange calendar is July the 12th, the glorious 12th, the anniversary of William of Orange's victory over Irish Catholics in the 1600s, which is still a big parade day in cities like Belfast and Toronto. July 12th would be a big party day, huge parade, tens of thousands of people there. And it was July 12th was the night that the clowns beat up those orange firefighters at that brothel mm -hmm. when orange sort of passions were at their height. So the next day in the morning, a crowd starts gathering outside the circus. They pitch their tents on the old fair green at Front and Sherburn, uh, where a new Ontario line station is replacing a car dealership right now, not far from the distillery. And this mob goes and attacks the circus. We even have individual quotes from some of the rioters saying things like, we'll have the livers out of them throwing stones, tearing down tents, setting fire uh, to some of the circus tents and other infrastructure. 
there are circus performers fleeing into the lake, trying to take cover uh, from these rioters. Eventually, the police arrive, but they're all on the Orange Order side. They don't really do anything. In the end, the mayor has to come down himself, call in the militia, and the riot is finally quenched. And the circus sort of flees town early, and Toronto's left sort of staggered by this yet another orange riot, and it sparks, yeah, big editorials in the globe, big conversations around these violent mobs that seem to run the city. And in the end, they're huge investigations into the police force. And in years to come, as more corruptions uncovered, every member of the Toronto police force would end up getting fired for stuff like this. They'd start the whole police force out from scratch, but it was still an incredibly orange place and would be for a long time to come. So many of the police officers were rehired. And even though we had examples like the circus riot to look at, Toronto stayed an incredibly orange city as I say, till Nathan Phillips was elected in the 1950s, the first non-Protestant mayor and the first non-Orange Order mayor in many, many decades when he won. As you say, that story has, you know, it's fantastic, it's sensational, it sounds kind of wacky on the surface, but as you say, there are multiple things that tell a lot about what Toronto was at the time and, and how we kind of got to the Toronto we have today. Uh, so much about the Orange Order has shaped what we still sometimes call Toronto the good here, and you know, we're kind of accused of a the place where fun goes to die. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, as someone who writes about current affairs in Toronto, I, I am uh, enamored with the idea that you can fire the entire police force and start again. Um, I, I think there might be some people that would jump on board uh, with that idea today. But uh what what do these stories matter to you as a storyteller? And what do they tell us about Toronto today that we can look back and say, oh, I see myself in that, even though it, it may involve circus clowns and brothels? And <laughs> It's part of what makes it one of my very favorite stories ever, is I'm always looking for like some weird, unexpected, smaller story that illuminates much larger things. And the circus riot does an amazing job of that. It's got that incredibly... A hook so good it's hard to believe the story is real but that also has so much to teach us about Toronto and how it worked back then but then that's a legacy that as you say we're still really actively dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can uh, see things that are happening in the police force today that you can trace back then I have a friend at the city who's used this story with uh, youth in Toronto to show them that Citizens and the police have had tensions going back longer than they might think, that they might think is just something that's uniquely happening to them now, but it's something that has incredibly deep roots in the city. And the, yeah, a lot of Toronto's conservatism, things like drinking laws that are still only getting challenged now, you can trace back to those days of the Orange Order, uh, of Toronto the Good, which is very much, that's a slogan from an Orange Order mayoral candidate who ran with that as his campaign slogan, promising very specifically as a big temperance guy to crack down on drinking and things that he saw as vice. He's the guy who invented the Toronto Police Morality Squad to sort of impose that 
very orange, very conservative vision of morality on the city. Yeah, police force that was still very much active well into the 1900s. I think the last mention I found for the morality squad of the Toronto police is from the year 2000. And that's something that you can trace back to this mayor who gets elected in the late 1800s on a platform that's very much promising to crack down on the Toronto of the circus ride of those brothels of the more frontier town earlier Toronto that was a pretty violent and riotous place that had city leaders who wanted it to be what they thought of as virtuous and this Toronto the good that wasn't a very inclusive vision wasn't a very fun vision and is one that is still yeah something that's actively having to be challenged and dismantled a century and a half later. Well, Adam, I want to thank you so much for treating us to a story. And uh, once again, congratulations on your well-earned award. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a fun story to share. And that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell the Budget Committee, the Fire Department, and any circus clowns you happen to come across. If you have a moment, share the show around. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, where you can pick up the latest 20th anniversary issue of the magazine, as well as the Big Book of Spacing, 20 years of uncovering Toronto's unique urbanism. In the meantime, tell your local councillor your budget priorities. Cheers. <laughs>